You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, January 29th, 2023 edition of Labor Express. Well, 2023 has not been a good year for me personally so far. Uh, Sorry, I did not have a new program for you last Sunday, as I should have. I got COVID for my birthday this year, so that was a lot of fun. Um, I'm just recovering from a rough bout of the illness, and I'm still assisting with family members who are still in recovery, so I had to skip last week's episode, and I apologize for that. Unfortunately, as you will hear on tonight's episode of Labor Express Radio, according to a friend of the program, economist Jack Rasmus, 2023 is not looking good in regards to the economy either. We'll hear about that in the second half of tonight's episode. But I hate to start the year off with some bad news only, so how about an actual victory in regards to workers' rights for once? We'll hear from Arise Chicago Worker Center about new moves by the Federal Department of Labor, National Labor Relations Board, and the and DHS to protect immigrant workers from exploitation. We're also going to hear from the Chicago Teachers Union about proposed changes to family leave policies for Chicago public sector workers. Unfortunately, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's seeming animosity towards teachers and their union continues, and those changes seem to be on hold for Chicago teachers for the time being. But before we get to all of that, our friends at Radio Labor in Canada have returned from their holiday break. In the following episode of Solidarity News, host Mark Belanger interviews ITF, that's the International Transport Workers Federation Maritime Coordinator, about the effect of the war in Ukraine on seafarers and how the labor movement has responded. On past episodes of Labor Express over the past year, we've discussed the role of transport workers, especially Ukrainian railroad workers, in the fight against Russian imperialism and the hardships they have endured as a result of the war. Workers on trains, of course, aren't the only transport workers to have been affected, and international organizations of transport workers like the ITF have stepped in to support the Ukrainian brothers and sisters. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Thursday, January 26, 2023. I'm Mark Boulanger. When the war in Ukraine started in February 2022, thousands of seafarers were on their vessels away from their families. Immediately, the European Transport Workers Federation, the ETF, and the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF, began to organize assistance. I talked to Jacqueline Smith about the role of the ETF and the ITF in Ukraine. Ms. Smith is the ITF's maritime coordinator. I reached her in her office in London. Ms. Smith, when the war in Ukraine started, many seafarers were on their vessels while their families were in cities being attacked by the Russian Federation. Do you have any idea how many Ukrainian seafarers were outside the country when all this started? Uh, Ukrainian seafarers are probably the fifth largest labor-providing country in the world. So I would say that they might have been around 20,000 to 50,000. That's a lot of people. There's a lot of seafarers. What did the ITF and unions do to help? The unions contacted us and we tried to help evacuate the families from those areas that were under attack. So we quickly, together with ITF Seafarers Trust, organized logistics so that they could be bused away from those areas into safer areas and then later on, fly out of the country to Romania. 
But there was also not Ukrainian seafarers, but international seafarers that were stuck on ships in Ukrainian ports. We had registered about 103 vessels that were stuck in Ukrainian ports, and that was about 1,500 international seafarers, so seafarers from all over the world, India, Sri Lanka, Philippines, that we were trying to assist to leave the country at the same time. The ETF and the ITF established a fund to help transport workers in Ukraine. How much has been raised and what have the funds been used for? So originally it was the European Transport Workers Federation that established a fund and then the ITF decided to establish a fund as well. So it was logical for the two organizations to do a joint fund. And this was uh, agreed in April in, in 2022. And half of the money has come from the International Transport Federation. And the remainder has come from either the ETF or the affiliates. And it's about £400,000 has, uh, has been raised and spent. And what we've used the funds for, first and foremost, because we established also an advisory board of the three UK Ukrainian affiliates. So... Uh, MTWTU, which is our seafarers affiliate, and then two rail affiliates. And each of the leaders in, in those unions were a member of the advisory board. And, and it was agreed that we would focus on humanitarian goods. So it would be food packages, uh, sanitary items, children's packages you know, with uh, drawing materials. It was also what they needed immediately. It was solar batteries, generators, water filters, waterproof socks, and heaters, especially coming into wintertime. How can unions and their members contribute to that fund? So we sent out circulars to the affiliates of where they can contribute the funds, that they can send that into a, a bank account in the ITF. We will be sending out again because uh, we have used the fund. We have used the money that we've raised so far, and that's been the intent of it. So we want to try to raise more. So that's our website, and we've also sent circuits to our affiliates. You attended a meeting held in Ukraine recently. One of the topics of that meeting was the children of transport workers. Tell us about that. What was decided? Well, often when we think of how, what we can do to help in these types of warlike situations, we think about you know, the material needs. And one of the issues that was raised is the trauma that war has on children and the need to support them to work through that trauma. And that's it. Labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Thank you to Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada, for allowing us to broadcast their segments regularly here on Labor Express. For more on Labor Radio, check out their website at radiolabor.net. As I explained on the top of tonight's program, at the end of last year, there was some good news about changes to paternity leave policies for public sector workers in Chicago that would have moved more in the direction of the civilized world's attitudes towards parental leave and redress some of the sexist double standard at the heart of our current approach. Unfortunately, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has apparently decided to continue her hostility to Chicago teachers and to the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, as those policies um, that the union expected to go into effect this month are apparently on hold for now. On January 18th, the CTU held a press conference expressing their frustrations with the mayor. 
In this segment, you will hear first from CTU organizer LaShawn Wallace, followed by several CTU members who are also parents of Chicago School students, describing why the proposed changes to paternity leave are so necessary. Good morning. My name is LaShawn Wallace, and we're here today at City Hall because the CTU has worked collaboratively with CPS on rolling out parallel policies for the district workers only to have the mayor and labor relations team backpedal mid-December, after mid-December. The measure was expected to go before the mayor's hand-picked board of education at their January 25th meeting. The move is now on hold indefinitely. Here we have today a collective of our members. We have automatics in the house. We have automatic candidates. We have automatic candidate um, Lori Torres of the 36th Ward. We have Jeanette Taylor, Alder Woman of the 20th Ward. We have Ros Rosanna Rodriguez, Alder Woman of the 33rd Ward. We also have Desmond Yancey, 5th Ward candidate, automatic candidate. We have Matt Martin, Alderman of the 47th Ward. We have Carlos uh, Rosa of the 35th Ward here to help speak on today. And first we're going to call one of our parents and teachers and CTU member to speak to you on this morning. We're calling forth Cassandra Cetopoulos. Good morning. My name is Cassandra Cetopoulos. I'm a 17-year veteran of Chicago Public Schools. I've been an LSC member, a coach, um, I'm a CTU delegate, and I'm currently an executive board member at the Chicago Teachers Union. And in this last year, I became a mother of a baby girl. I've had to deal with a lot of CPS shenanigans, but it reached a new low when I was trying to navigate the abysmal parental leave policy that CPS has for parents. I had to have an emergency C-section in order to deliver my daughter. And right before they opened me up, I was scared, I was anxious, but I had a very disturbing thought. I could get eight weeks of short-term disability instead of six weeks. That's really a messed up thought for a mom to have right before they're cutting her open to deliver her daughter. It's medieval. Afterwards, I reflected on how the wealthiest nation in the world and the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest cities in the country could not have a guaranteed parental leave policy for every citizen, where a woman would look on the bright side of a C-section. In order to spend more time with my newborn daughter, I basically used up all my bank sick days. Now I worry that if I get sick, I won't have the days in order to stay home with her, let alone if I get sick myself. It's also inequitable because many of my male colleagues have hundreds of days bank that they can use to cash out early for retirement <clears throat> or to retire early with, something I won't have. In a profession that's dominated by women, to discriminate against them like this is unconscionable. You can't shortchange them on parental leave. Many of my family members and friends in the private sector get between four to six months of paid time off. If you want to attract the best and the brightest, you need to include a longer parental leave for Chicago public school teachers. You can imagine how excited and overjoyed I was when I heard that the mayor was going to extend 12 weeks of paid parental leave for all CTU members. And how crushed I was later when I heard that she rescinded her uh, promise to offer public sector employees like myself these 12 weeks. We were so close to getting this basic right. 
We even had a timeline with the board that they were going to approve it at the January meeting, only for it to be ripped away over winter break. If I choose to have a second child, I have to be extremely strategic about when I do so that I can have enough days as possible with my baby. I cannot believe that in 2023, the mayor, my boss, has the right to tell me where I can live and now when I can have my baby. The Handmaid's Tale is not far off. When people wonder why CTU gets involved in political matters, it's because politicians like the mayor have an outsized role in both my professional and my personal life. That's why we need champions on our side, people who are family and teacher friendly, just why the CTU has endorsed Brandon Johnson for mayor or other candidates like Lori Torres. You messed with our jobs and our students and we went on strike for 11 days. Now you're messing with our babies and there's nothing that this mama bear won't do to protect her baby. So I urge the mayor, the members of the city council and the hand-picked board of education to negotiate the details of the 12-week parental leave policy with CTU and approve it as soon as possible. Thank you. Thank you, Cassandra. At this time, we will hear from another parent, teacher and CTU member, Allison Soldner. Good morning. My name is Allie Soldner. I am a kindergarten teacher for the Chicago Public Schools and a proud member of the union. Last year, when the mayor announced that all city workers would be receiving 12 weeks of parental leave, I was overwhelmed. What a difference this would make in my third baby's health and in my health. But then, for reasons unknown, she rescinded that. Teachers were not included. And that is why I am here today to ask the mayor why. Why are you leaving out a division of city workers that is comprised of 80% women? For, um, do our babies not deserve that same bond? Do I not deserve that same time to heal? It doesn't make sense. Offering 12 weeks of paid leave is a, only a step in the right direction. This city, this country is far behind the rest of the developed world. Long-term paid parental leave is a basic human right, and it needs to be that way here as well. Maternity leave is not a vacation. It is the most exhausting, mentally draining, wonderful roller coaster. With my firstborn, I couldn't stand for longer than 10 minutes at six weeks, let alone seven hours in a classroom of kindergartners. With my daughter, I suffered from postpartum depression. I was far from the human being I should have been, and this is not a teacher that students deserved. The daycare that we had lined up wouldn't even accept my children till at least nine weeks. They considered that inhumane, and that's common practice across the country. I extended my leaves not only because I physically had to, but because I financially could. I live in a two-income household. That is not the case for many of our teachers. It's not fair. Many teachers live paycheck to paycheck. Formula, diapers, wipes, the basic necessities to keep a baby alive cost an average of $600 a month. With 12 weeks of unpaid leave, how do you pay for those things? No one becomes a teacher for the money. We do it because we love it, because we're passionate. But it's a sad truth that so many teachers are leaving CPS for other districts that offer better benefits, or they're leaving the profession altogether. Offering a mere 12 paid weeks will attract quality teachers, the next generation of teachers, and it will keep your passionate teachers in CPS. I don't want to leave CPS, but I might have to. 
I love my job, but I also love my children, and I don't want to have to choose between them. No parent should have to choose between a paycheck and time to bond with their newborn. What we are asking for is 12 weeks, a mere blip of time in our careers, but such a monumental time for our babies. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. At this time, you will hear from another teacher veteran of 20 years, a CTU member, an automatic candidate of the 36th Ward, none other than Lori Torres. Good morning. My name is Lori Torres Witt. Um, this morning, first, thank you, CTU. We have been working with our kids front and center for me, two decades at least, and I am growing a community in the 36th Ward that I am now a part of, and I'm talking to neighbors and community folk, and one of the things that comes up often is how do we properly support our schools? How do we make for a just and equal living here in Chicago? Part of that has to do with properly funding our schools, but also supporting the people in them. Paid parental leave is part of that. To have it offered and then rescinded a few weeks later, that's not right. We need people in City Hall and people in the mayor's office or a person in the mayor's office who will work with us and will see the value in our work. Because we work day to day with families in our classrooms, but we have families of our own. I'm a mother of three. My youngest is 11. Paid parental leave wasn't a thing. So some teachers, like me, had all her babies in the summer to try to accommodate for the need of growing my family. Not everyone can do that. It doesn't work that way for everyone. It, it's how it works for me. I want this city to value education, but also value its educators. We deserve better. We deserve a mayor who will work with us. We deserve a city council who will fight for us. And a city council who will recognize our value and work alongside us. I'm a CTU member. I'm a member of United Working Families, Grassroots Illinois Action, and have supported United with Delia. I am in this because I am an advocate. I am in this because as a teacher, enough is enough. We need more, we deserve better, and that's why we're here. Thank you. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. As I mentioned at the top of tonight's episode, all the news in the first month of 2023 is not bad news. On January 12th, Arise Chicago Workers Center held a press conference in Federal Plaza expressing their frustration with the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, their foot dragging on releasing written guidelines for how the new labor protections for immigrant workers who organize at their workplaces will be implemented. So far, the Biden administration, much like the Obama administration before it, has been a bit of a disappointment in regards to labor rights, at least as far as significant and essential legislation to address the abysmal state of workers' rights in this country. But again, much like during the Obama years, the Biden administration has tried for changes at the margins through executive actions that are nonetheless very significant for millions of working people in the United States. This includes immigrant workers, both undocumented and documented. 
As an example, the 2021 U.S. Department of Labor and National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, announced that they would offer increased protections for undocumented workers when they try to organize. Unfortunately, implementation of those protections were stymied by the failure of DHS to offer written guidelines on how to implement these new policies. The following audio you will hear is from the January 12th Arise Chicago press conference, where they're focusing on immigrant workers' frustrations with DHS. Well, in a situation that's far too uncommon in the news we cover here on Labor Express, the situation was largely rectified the following day on the 13th when DHS announced the release of their long-awaited guidelines. So as you listen to the following audio, keep in mind that this turned out to be a victory for immigrant workers and their advocates. First, we're going to hear from Laura Garza of RISE, followed by a good friend of Labor Express, a RISE Chicago organizer, Jorge Mujica, who we haven't heard from in a while now. He's translated for Sofia Magdalena, a domestic worker who provided uh, information about her experience and her perspective on this issue. Unfortunately, um, Magdalena's, uh, Sofia Magdalena's comments were completely, completely in Spanish, so I decided to edit those out and just include Jorge Mujica's translation. Good morning. My name is Laura Garza, Worker Center Director for RISE Chicago founded in 1991, whose mission is supporting immigrant workers. From decades of experience and from many local and national studies, we know immigrant workers face high levels of legal violations on the job. And we know that such legal violations are not a few bad apples. Immigrant workers are systematically hired by employers who create a culture of fear and then prey on workers' fears. We know that all workers, both immigrants and U.S. born, often don't take action to address workplace violations because of fear of being fired. Many immigrant workers have additional fear based on real threats due to immigration status. Some employers, employers very directly threaten workers saying that they will call la migra, that they will call immigration if they speak up. Others are more subtle. Nevertheless, the threat, the fear, is real for thousands of workers. This employer-created fear stymies workers' legal right to uphold their rights, improve working conditions, and organize on the job. In October of 2021, the Department of Homeland Security recognized that such fears make it harder for labor enforcement agencies to do their job and harder to hold violating employers accountable. To support the Federal Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board to fully carry out their mandates to protect workers' rights to the minimum wage and overtime and safe working conditions and workers' right to organize, DHS announced a new process. DHS stated that it would approve immigration relief for undocumented workers for facing labor disputes. In order for labor enforcement agencies to complete their investigations and to hold violating employers accountable. However, DHS has since failed to release guidelines at this process. We are here today as part of a national week of action as worker rights organizations, workers, and religious leaders to demand the Department of Homeland Security releases guidelines on their announcement from well, well over a year ago. To their credit, both the National Labor Relations Board and the Federal Department of Labor released guidelines back in 2021 and 2022 on how their offices will proceed to carry out the intentions of the DHS announcement. But DHS has failed to do the same. 
Hi, my name is Jorge Mujica, organizer with the Rice Chicago, and I'm going to try to translate <laughs> what Magdalena said, which is incredibly important and interesting. Um, she says, I'm here as a member of a Rice, but not only. I'm uh, here as a worker, one more worker who has faced a number of problems and abuses in the workplace. Um, Domestic workers, I am a domestic worker, and domestic workers suffer maybe a little bit less than workers at factories and warehouses where they are constantly abused by employers. Uh, and I'm calling today to all those workers who fear, who face fear in the workplace because they fear to be dismissed, they fear to be fired, but also they fear to be deported they fear to be separated from their families if they complain when they uh, suffer abuses in the workplace. Uh, we have three elements or three actors in this whole scenario. We have the government who has been blind to our problems, to our dynamics. We have the bosses that constantly abuse workers, particularly undocumented workers, and we have the workers themselves. So what I'm doing today is telling everybody, if you take our jobs, if you take our work, you have to respect our rights. If you believe we are essential, then our rights are also essential. That's right. That's right. That's right. This is a good measure, a good policy, but it's only, only a band-aid. We need better laws, we need all the workers to raise up. We need all the workers to learn that this is the time. We have to do it now. Silence is not leading us anywhere. We have to raise up, we have to demand, and we have to take fear away from our lives. And this policy might help to take this fear away. Otherwise, if we keep silent, there is just no future for any of us. Thank you very much. Just want to be really clear with the workers. Their biggest protection is to organize, right? They, they need to lose that fear. We know that employers do this all the time. People, if you're, even if you're not an immigrant worker, we know how workers feel every time they have to confront the boss. It is not easy. Nevertheless, when workers pass that fear, and they organize, they're protected under the National Labor Relations Board, and that's what we need workers to hear today. So thank you, Sofia, for your words. Gracias, Sofia, for, for lo que dijiste este, este día, y espero que los trabajadores escuchen eso. So to reiterate, organizing by immigrant workers and organizations like Arise Chicago Workers Center was successful in getting the DHS to issue the long-awaited guidelines being demanded in that press conference. So congratulations to Arise and to the immigrant workers who fought long and hard for those changes. Let's hope this is just the beginning of increased labor protections in the coming year. If you'd like to know more about uh, these new guidelines from DHS uh, and what they mean for immigrant workers and protection of immigrant workers, um, there are some still concerns too, I guess, from Arise Chicago about uh, how quickly these will be implemented and so on. You can check out a statement that Arise Chicago put out on the 13th, the day after that press conference that you just heard from, uh, in which they talk about uh, these new guidelines. And I'll have that linked up at laborexpress.org. That's laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, news for working people by working people. 
We need to take a station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear from economist Jack Rasmus on what we can likely expect in regards to economic conditions in 2023. So make sure you stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. On the last episode of Labor Express Radio, we discussed predictions for what 2023 is likely to bring for working people via our friends at the Heartland Labor Forum out of Kansas City. Uh, the segment that we broadcast from them included labor union organizers, activists, attorneys, uh, journalists, and others offering their insights on what they expect in the coming year. Well, before the first month of 2023 closes, I thought I would bring you one more voice to offer perspective on what we can expect in the coming months. It's been a while since we heard from our friend, Dr. Jack Rasmus, who's a professor of economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's also a former advisor to the San Francisco Labor Council and a prolific author of over a half dozen books on political economy. On one of the most recent episodes of his podcast, Alternative Visions, Jack offered his predictions on economic conditions for the coming year. Spoiler alert, they are not rosy. Ready for a return to the 1970s? I guess I wouldn't mind a return to the music of the late 70s. I could definitely use uh, some more clash in the jam, uh, no doubt. But certainly I don't desire a return of bell bottoms. And what Rasmus predicts is far worse, which is stagflation. You guys remember stagflation? Those of us that actually lived through the 70s may remember something about it. That's inflation where you don't have a job. So uh, not a good time. Um, so let's swallow our medicine here and hear what Dr. Rasmus has to say about what's to come in 2023. You know, there's a lot of talk about recession uh, deepening. Of course, in 2022, there's a lot of debate as to what was and is a recession. Uh, we had uh, the standard definition in the first half of the year, GDP, gross domestic product contracting. That's usually sufficient to define a recession. Uh, but, uh, you know, the mainstream media and economics profession uh, uh, have been saying, uh, well, you know, it's not really a recession. It's a technical recession. And then, of course, in the second half, uh, we had a, a little bit of a rebound in the economy, very weak rebound, you know, basically uh, two, two and a half percent here in the third quarter. Uh, and then uh, it looks like eh, something a little bit weaker than that in the fourth quarter. We don't know. We'll see uh, what goes on here when fourth quarter numbers come in. Uh, but uh, the very tepid recovery here of sorts. Uh, but the consensus is that uh, with the rate hikes by the Fed going on pretty rapidly and significantly over the past year, since March of 22, that uh, since monetary rate hikes uh, have a lagged effect uh, that we're going to see in um, the first half of this year, 23, a relapse in the economy and, quote, a recession. Uh, a lot of debate as to uh, whether the recession or re-recession, whatever you want to call it, here in the first half of this year is going to be mild, moderate, significant. Uh, no one knows for sure. Uh, some are predicting a soft landing. Others are saying, no, it will be, uh, uh, you know, a, a general recession. No one in the mainstream sees it as a, you know, deep recession. <laughs> and uh, most are predicting uh, it'll be over. Uh, by the second half of this year, and we'll have a recovery. Well, no one knows for sure, and those who are saying that are just guesstimating. 
Uh, it could be uh, definitely a deeper recession uh, or a mild one. Uh, but in any event, the consensus is uh, the first half of this year there will be a recession, and I uh, have agreed with that. Uh, I believe we've been in a recession uh, throughout 2022, uh, a mild one, uh, but nonetheless a contraction of the economy for various reasons. Most importantly, uh, I believe uh, that the real GDP is uh, uh overestimated because inflation adjustments are underestimated. Inflation is actually worse than it gets reported. Uh, and, of course, that um, adjusts uh, nominal GDP to get the real GDP number uh, that, uh, you know, is associated with uh, inflation in, uh, recession, rather. Uh, okay, so that's one reason uh, if uh, inflation were more accurate and higher, uh, last year, then uh, uh, the, the quote recovery of the second half would be even less, maybe even negative. Uh, and then, of course, the other factor is uh, uh, in 2013, the U.S. redefined GDP and uh, pretty much uh, added $500 billion uh, to it uh, by those redefinitions, which are questionable. Uh, so both the inflation adjustment and uh, the redefinition uh, mean that GDP uh, is much lower than it actually gets reported. Uh, so for that reason, I think the second half of last year uh, was um, really not very significant. Uh, anyway, uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, Chairman Powell, in his uh, December press conference, uh, estimated that um, the growth of the U.S. economy for the full year 2022 uh, will be about one-half of one percent. Uh, the Fed will never forecast the contraction, so you know it was pretty, uh, you know, pretty, pretty weak uh, economy. Given the fact that, uh, you know, it started out last year with a significant uh, uh, COVID relief, uh, the last one, uh, you know, that uh, actually came through here um, in 2021. Okay, so, uh, you know, pretty much no growth at best last year. <clears throat> and the Fed is predicting a, a very moderate recession this year. Uh, GDP for all of 23 uh, will be a uh, uh, another half of 1% growth rate. Well, you know, the historic growth rate is uh, 2 to 3%. So the U.S. Uh, is not really recovering here. Uh, and, and you've got to uh, uh, put it in context. You know, in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus during 2021, the COVID period, uh, you know, we're talking about 3 to $4 trillion in government fiscal spending and tax cut stimulus. So we're talking about uh, four to five trillion dollars uh, in uh, uh, Federal Reserve monetary stimulus. So, you know, eight trillion dollars, eight trillion dollars pumped into the economy in 2021 during COVID. And what did we get? We got a half of one percent growth rate in 2022. I mean, think about it. That's really amazing. And it really tells you that fiscal monetary policy is not working very well and probably won't work very well going forward. 
here. We are in the new era where fiscal monetary stimulus uh, has not had that much effect. And I believe, as I've argued, the converse as well, that contractionary fiscal monetary policy, i.e. raising interest rates and cutting spending, um, will also have a limited effect on slowing uh, the economy. And so, it, you know, it's both in the uh, stimulating the economy and trying to slow the economy, as the Fed is trying to do now, rate hikes, um, is not very efficient anymore. It doesn't work. You've got you to put in far more <laughs> into the economy to get uh, a, a less of a response than ever before. Okay. Uh, recession will deepen is my forecast here. Uh, it will be uh, worse than a quarter of 1% growth, which isn't really a recession. Um, I think in the first half we're going to see uh, far more of a contraction than people are forecasting. Uh, we can already see the housing sector, residential housing, at about half, two-thirds of normal here. It's been contracting. Uh, we can see what's happening. It's spilling over into the tech sector, uh, which is beginning layoffs now. And Amazon, uh, which is really a sort of a indicator of where the goods market is going if their flow of goods uh, is uh, declining and they're laying off people, which they are, uh, you know, the tech sector and, and the goods sector, the manufacturing sector uh, is also uh, slowing uh, significantly now. Uh, so at this point, you know, the recession is focused on uh, uh, on housing, tech, and now manufacturing. Uh, the big service sector, which is most of the economy, uh, has not really begun contracting yet. But we will see uh, because uh, consumers and consumer spending, even on services, I think is reaching a limit. Uh, we've seen uh, retail sales adjusted for inflation pretty much flat uh, in the fourth quarter of this year. Uh, and uh, that does not bode well. Most of the uh, spending is being done by uh, debt and credit cards. Credit card growth uh, is uh, in the fourth quarter double that of uh, previous uh, pre-COVID years. Um, so the consumers are, are, are buying to the extent they are uh, on, uh, on credit cards and debt. Um, student debt, of course, will not get relieved. Uh, I think Biden's uh, program is dead on arrival, uh, won't get passed. Uh, and of course, the housing and mortgage debt is going up because rates are going up. Uh, and uh, then, of course, uh, wage increases are not really occurring. Uh, maybe at the bottom end, as some states raise minimum wages, and at the top end where shortages, skilled professionals exist. But in the big middle, uh, you don't see a, a really significant wage increases uh, going on that would generate enough income to stimulate consumption uh, and therefore demand. Uh, so, um, you know, my assessment is uh, the spillover from tech and housing to manufacturing goods production slowing uh, will probably continue. And uh, the big question is, will it spill over uh, further uh, to the services sector and service demand and 
service uh, consumption. Uh, that remains to be seen. Probably has a lot to do with how high inflation will go and uh, how uh, how stressed uh, with debt levels that consumers will will become next year. Uh, on the other side, uh, next year, um, you know, GDP will be artificially boosted by government war and defense spending. Uh, so it could offset whatever contraction on the consumer side. Uh, business investment is a big question mark. Uh, the government uh, in 2022 passed three big business investment subsidy bills. Uh, the uh, uh, Infrastructure uh, Act at the beginning of the year, the Chip and Semi and Manufacturing Subsidy Act, uh, and uh, at the end, the uh, inflation reduction, which is really uh, throwing money at alternative energy and fossil energy, uh, thanks to Joe Manchin, uh, spending and subsidies. So those three big bills passed last year uh, will start to, in 23, have a little bit of a stimulative effect. They're long-term spending, so not all of it will hit the economy this year, uh, but some will. And uh, that, along with more spending by the government, defense spending, uh, will offset, to some extent, uh, contraction from uh, stagnant or even falling retail sales, consumer consumer spending, housing, big-ticket items, cars, and so forth. It will uh, offset some of that. Uh, and then, of course, you have uh, what's called net exports or trade, the external uh, contribution uh, to a GDP, <clears throat> and we'll see where that goes. That's been negative uh, somewhat over 22. Uh, whether that turns positive and also offsets consumption, uh, spending, and uh, business investment that's not related to those three bills uh, remains to be seen. Uh, so it's a mixed picture, uh, and we're kind of at a juncture in terms of U.S. economy and recession, some positive forces, some negative forces, which will prevail is going to be interesting to see. Uh, but my prediction is that uh, inflation will moderate, just as the recession will be deeper uh, than forecasted by officials. Uh, inflation will moderate. You know, the CPI is now around 7 7.5%. Uh, that will continue to moderate or what they call disinflation. Uh, in other words, the rate of price increases slows. That's disinflation. Deflation is when prices actually contract. Uh, but we're going to have disinflation. The rate will come down in 2023, I think, uh, uh, to around 4%. Uh, it will not be the Federal Reserve's target of 2%. You're not going to see that for a long time. Uh, unless there's a massive uh, deep recession here uh, in a la 2008-9. Uh, but we're going to continue to see um, uh, price pressures rising here for food, for rent, and some services will stay high. Uh, I think uh, gasoline prices will continue to rise here. Uh, they've kind of moderated uh but they will uh, rise once again once the spring comes and crude prices and could rise even further if there's an intensification of, uh, of the war in Ukraine, which we'll talk about later. Um, so 
you know, uh, energy prices will rise. Uh, natural gas prices, of course, are rising. Uh, the oil companies have simply shifted their supply pressures from uh, uh, gasoline uh, to uh, uh, diesel to some extent and natural gas and home heating oil. Uh, what they uh, give with one, they take back with the other, and then some. Uh, so uh, inflation uh, pressures will remain significant throughout 2023, not as high perhaps as, as 22, um, but we will have chronic uh, around 4% inflation uh, for some time to come. At the same time, we will have more unemployment eventually. That's called stagflation. Uh, so stagflation will be an issue next year. Uh, inflation will come down some, but not all that much, uh, because uh, uh, the Fed can uh, can shake out prices uh, that are driven by demand, demand-driven inflation. But the Fed uh, can do nothing about supply-side uh, inflation, particularly offshore supply forces. That have to do with uh, commodities inflation, uh, U.S. sanctions, uh, disruption of global supply chains. Uh, it could do something, or the government could do something about the price gouging going on by monopolistic corporations. Uh, you know who they are. You know uh, they were for a while the oil, gasoline uh, uh, companies, and now it's the natural gas and utilities, uh, and it's uh, rents which the Fed uh, recognizes as significant price increases, but isn't going to do anything about it, they said. Uh, and uh, food prices, where you have monopolistic food processors are driving up prices as well, you know, in meatpacking, bakery goods, and so forth. Uh, so food prices, rents, and so forth will stay, uh, certain services will stay um, relatively high, uh, into 2023. The Fed will shake out some of that by causing massive unemployment with its rate hikes, but the Fed can do nothing about the supply side uh, problems, which are um, account for more than half of the inflation. Uh, so notwithstanding all that, we will have some moderation in prices, I predict, and, but not all, not all that much, and we will have a deeper contraction uh, than is forecast consensus, I predict. Uh, fiscal policy will continue to shift in the U.S. What is that shift? Well, the shift was from uh, you know three to four trillion dollars in uh, subsidies and support, relief, whatever uh, during the COVID crisis and shutdowns and contraction, which was uh, from March 2020 uh, through 2021. Uh, that shift uh, from that kind of spending to last year to uh, subsidies of uh, business investment. And that's the three bills that we mentioned. Very clear. They cut off uh, COVID spending uh, and, and subsidies to uh, uh, the populace. Uh, and uh, they shifted the money in part to uh, fund these, these three big bills. Uh, and uh, they shifted the money uh, to pay for uh, war spending. Uh, last year, the U.S. Uh, roughly uh, provided $111 billion in uh, Ukraine war-related uh, support, some of it direct to Ukraine. Uh, some of it uh, went, a uh, big part of it went to uh, U.S. war production companies, you know, Raytheon and Lockheed and uh, 
and Boeing and so forth uh, to pay for um, uh, the military arms. Uh, those military arms, uh, in part, some of them went directly to Ukraine. A lot of them uh, uh, went to uh, NATO members in East Europe to backfill uh, after NATO members in East Europe dumped their old Soviet-era stuff on uh, Ukraine. Uh, $111 billion, roughly. And now we see uh, an increase of $45 billion uh, to Ukraine, which is just about the increase uh, in the uh, uh, Pentagon budget envisioned for this year, which is $853 billion going just to the Pentagon, right? Uh, and that's even before uh, Congress uh, ups that. Uh, I think they will up it at least to $875 billion. They always do that. Uh, always uh, increase uh, subsidies to uh, the defense war industries more than the uh, administration uh, request. So, uh, you know, Biden's budget is $853 billion. Congress will raise that to 875 roughly, I think. Um, but that is only Pentagon. Pentagon is not all the defense spending. As I've said many times here, you know, uh, uh, the way the U.S. works, it uh, has a lot of other uh, budget cubbyholes where war spending actually goes on as well. Uh, and that, uh, you know, includes uh, the Energy Department, uh, which funds all of the military's uh, oil. Uh, purchases. And, you know, U.S. military is the biggest single purchaser of fossil fuels in the world. Um, and uh, uh, the Atomic Energy uh, Commission, where, um, you know, the nuclear development occurs, no, new nuclear arm development occurs. Uh, you've got the, the CIA and the NSA uh, funding of the, their private mercenary armies. Uh, you've got Homeland Security, which is part of that as well. Uh, you've got the recent uh, veterans benefits, um, Congress passed the generous $400 billion over 10 years of uh, increase in uh, spending on veterans. Um, and uh, then there's this off-budget uh, secret weapons program developments that never show up in the printed matter of the U.S. budget, which always, uh, you know, is about 50 to $75 billion a year. And then the increased interest on the debt for war spending share. Uh, you know, you're looking at maybe $1.2 trillion here, not the $853 billion for just the Pentagon. Uh, the larger figure is really what's spent on war and defense. And uh, so that means you got about $1.2 trillion of the total U.S. budget of $1.75 trillion. So about two-thirds the U.S. is spending annually on war. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit, right? Two-thirds of the budget is war spending. A lot of the so-called discretionary non-defense spending, non-Pentagon spending, is actually defense war spending of various kinds. Uh, how long can the, you know, the U.S. continue spending two-thirds of its budget annually on war and defense uh, well, that's an interesting question. We'll we'll see, but uh, uh, you know, it's it's significant, right? Uh, I I suspect uh, that in addition to the forty five billion in the budget for Ukraine, there'll be at least another hundred billion um, 
over time spent. Uh, a lot of this uh, war spending, by the way, was uh, COVID relief money that had not been spent that got redirected to the Ukraine war last year. Uh, where where they get it from this year remains to be seen. So uh, fiscal policy, will, the shift will continue to um, uh, defense and more spending and corporate subsidies for investment. Um, uh, monetary policy, okay, the Federal Reserve. Let's look at that. The Federal Reserve uh, last year raised interest rates. It's a target benchmark rate called the Federal Funds Rate. A short-term rate uh, from March of last year through uh, 2022 raised it uh, close to 5% um, in a series of uh, very significant rapid increases of three-fourths of 1%. Um, and, of course, the federal funds rate uh, pushes up all other interest rates, so general rates continue to rise. Uh, and it has an impact on the economy with uh, probably closer to a nine-month lag, which we're beginning to, to see now. Right. Now, uh, I believe the Fed, and my prediction is the Fed will continue raising rates into 23. Uh, it will do so uh, until uh, you know sometime in the early spring. And then it will halt. And we'll wait to see what the effects are, because remember, it has a, has a lag, uh, and it will uh, keep rates high. It won't start lowering rates in 2023. It will keep them high, uh, putting pressure on, on the uh, real economy here to slow down for, uh, as the Fed wants to see layoffs and therefore uh, wages uh, reduce. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Well, now that I've no doubt depressed most of our listeners with those economic predictions from economist uh, Dr. Jack Rasmus, I need to let you know that that is only the first third third to a half of the doctor's full podcast on this topic. I had to edit out uh, the majority of it for time. Uh, If you want to hear the rest of that episode of his Alternative Visions podcast, you'll need to refer to the link I have up at laborexpress.org. Um, there's a lot more in the podcast on uh, predictions for 2023 and other factors in the economy. So it's it's worth taking a listen to. Again, that's up at laborexpress.org. Well, it's all the time we have on tonight's episode, but you can always find out more, again, like I said, at laborexpress.org. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. Who's expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, Working People's Voices broadcasting worldwide, 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express.